внимание говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. There won't be any reset buttons, and there won't be any grand bargains, and U.S. President Joe Biden certainly won't be looking into Kremlin leader Vladimir Putin's eyes and getting a sense of his soul. But the stakes will nevertheless be high when the U.S. and Russian presidents meet in Geneva this week. So what can we expect to happen when Biden meets Putin? We'll discuss that today, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from our nation's capital is Jonathan Katz, a senior fellow and director of democracy initiatives at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Before joining GMF, Jonathan served as Deputy Assistant Administrator in Europe and Eurasia Bureau in the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID. Welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. I'm glad we were finally able to get you on. Yeah, thank you so much. And I love this podcast and really appreciate the opportunity to, to join you because we're in the week, sort of a few days before really the what I call the World Cup of Summits. And, uh, you know, uh, so really appreciate being here. And, and, and this is such an important conversation. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I certainly this is the first time you're on, but I certainly hope it won't be the last. So, so like when I'm looking at this upcoming summit and what appears clear to me from the comments of administration officials is that President Biden would like to transform this relationship with Russia from a very unpredictable adversarial relationship into a more predictable adversarial relationship. The historical metaphor I tend to use here is the latter period of the Cold War, when the U.S. and the Soviet Union were indeed adversaries, but there were clear rules of the road and each knew what to expect from the other. So that's what that's what I think the president's going into this summit hoping for. But the concern I have is this. Putin is not interested in making this relationship predictable. He's not interested in rules of the road. The unpredictability and the chaos are actually his asymmetrical advantage. So why would he give that up? And for this reason, I expect the summit's going to end in an impasse. Jonathan, how do you see this summit? Am I being too pessimistic here? Uh, no, you're not. And I, I think the, the Biden administration, from the president down, know how unpredictable Mr. Putin can be. I think it is true that they would like some stability in this relationship because there's a number of priorities, both domestic an international that a new administration after four years of the Trump administration is faced with. So this upcoming week is a lot, you know, largely about rebuilding the transatlantic alliance and helping to get people coalescing around a strategy uh, to deal with some both domestic issues uh, that relate to COVID-19 and global economy, but also looking at these foreign policy challenges. And I think some, sometimes we forget in this conversation that I think this administration and Biden think great amount of damage was done. It's easy to tear down, you know, NATO and dismiss Article 5, but then to rebuild that trust. And I think I'm sure we're going to talk about Nord Stream 2, yes. some of these issues that have come up. So I don't think that the president of the United States had called Putin a killer, which is, I think, right. is accurate. I think he did the right thing there and is, has been talking about responding 
has created certain red lines already. You know, if you go after the U.S. in terms of infrastructure or national security interests, the U.S. is going to respond. And so I think they have done that to some extent. Some people are not satisfied. But I don't think this is a naive group going in, Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, and, and certainly not the president. But they do need to have some measure of stability. And of course, Putin recognizes that. Yes. And so he's pushing buttons like uh, outlawing Navalny, you know, a political operation and others, or giving support to Lukashenko after the MiG-29 air terror incident and going after Belarusian opposition, you know, or, or media. So I, I just think that they are clearly not going to play to what exactly Biden wants. Uh, and I think Biden knows that but they'll test to see what they can get out of this relationship. And of course, China looms large. And we'll probably discuss you know, whether or not you think you can peel Russia away from China, which I don't think many people believe that's possible, but I think they're testing and it's four months into this administration. This is not a reset. No. Um, this is not looking into the soul, the <laughs> eyes of, of Putin. I mean, the opposite is looking in and saying that he's soulless. I think that is the case. I think Biden very much agrees with that. And um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens when these two guys are standing together at a press conference next week. You know, what plays out in front of the international community and those that are watching. Yeah, and I'm sure the president is prepared for that. And you're correct, Jonathan. President Biden has no illusions about Putin. I mean, he did famously say to Putin back in Moscow when he was vice president, I'm looking into your eyes and I don't think you have a soul. And Putin's response was also pretty priceless. He said, we understand each other. <laughs> so I think, but, but what worries me is that Biden wants something out of this meeting. He wants this relationship to be kind of stabilized and made predictable. Putin knows that. And I don't think Putin's going to give it to him, but Putin's going to try to extract something. And this is not a, this is not a naive group. But do you worry about like how badly do we want to turn this relationship into a predictable one? And what, if anything, do you think the United States is willing to give up for that? Yeah, this is not a Yalta moment. Some people have approached me saying, oh, gosh, you know, this this grand bargain or spheres of influence. And the president's been clear. I mean, I think even I know there's a lot of concern about engagement with the Ukrainians. Yep. You know, President Zelensky came out and said, hey, you know, I want to speak to you before this before mm -hmm. this meeting. And the president of the White House, I thought, did, you know, they were yeah. right to respond. They didn't ignore it. They understand that that Ukraine is under a great deal of pressure, and not only on the, the NS2, Nord Stream 2 situation, but there are still hundreds, you know, tens of thousands of Russian troops on the borders and illegally occupied Crimea, you know, in the Black Sea. And so I don't see this happening. But the, the things that are on the table that people are talking about are things like Afghanistan, mm -hmm. uh, cooperation maybe on JCPOA, on Iran, um, climate, arms control. Can you yeah. even address the issues of diplomats, of the ability to, to, to tamp down the back and forth that we've seen to the point where the U.S. can't issue visas to people uh, leaving? But I don't see a lot of areas where you're going to see cooperation. But the question is, is it about uh, managing and preventing maybe really bad things from happening? And I, in the back of my mind is the threats of Putin as a nuclear power that always to me, he raises and it's something, mm -hmm. it's not, you know, it's not the reason not to do something for the US, but you've got to think about some of those challenges as well. And I think this administration, if you're Jake Sullivan, you're looking out at yeah. and Biden, you're looking out at this chessboard that does not only include Putin, but it includes what's happening in Beijing, what's happening in Iran, 
and sort of around you? And how do you deal with these things to put the U.S. and allies in the best possible position to address these challenges long term from a position of strength? I think they're trying to do it. I don't know if they'll get there. And of course, the unpredictability is, you know, at any moment you could have an incident like a military incursion in Ukraine and this thing gets thrown completely off the rails. And I think that's just any administration um, should expect that they're going to have some sort of a surprise. Uh, and, and so when that happens, you know, it could alter the course of, of this. But I, I see this as being an adversarial relationship. And I don't expect that there will be much gained from this conversation, except let's have another conversation. Yeah, there's there's fears in some Eastern European quarters that there might be a grand bargain, but that is clearly not going to happen. But I'm just I'm, I'm trying to get my head around what could we possibly give Putin that's acceptable to us that would get this the relationship to the stable, predictable place that, that Biden would like to get it to. And the signs going into the summit are not good. I mean, as you noted, Putin's double down on repression at home ahead of the summit, um, not just declaring Navalny's organization a, uh, an extremist organization, but the, I mean, the, the arrests of, of other political prisoners. You have cyber attacks, both state-sponsored and state-enabled. And I think it's important to make this distinction. There are cyber attacks that are state-directed, and then there are basically just the fact that Putin will give safe harbor to cyber criminals in Russia with two rules, basically. Rule number one, don't attack the motherland. And rule number two, if we tell you to attack something, you will do as you're told. But other than that, you can just do as you please. Um, and so I, I'm expecting this to come up for Biden to maybe issue some kind of ultimatum if this has got to stop, because this is stuff that's starting to hit our critical infrastructure. It's clearly coming from Russia, whether it's you know the cases where it's state-sponsored and in cases where it's state-enabled. How do you expect the president to handle that? Well, I, I, I want to go back, because I think one of the things in sort of stability and relations is, is, let's go to the bare minimum, which is that there is now new lines of communication uh, that we've seen both from the NSC from State Department, from DOD. Let's lower this bar because right. that's a low bar. So that's really important. The colonial issue, solar winds, these issues are absolutely right. And I think what Biden wants to do is this is the area where you want stability. And so, you know, absolutely, you know, what is the response going to be? I do think so far it's been sanctions on solar winds uh, connected to that. I think the administration has gone to great pains. It doesn't make me feel super comfortable, but they've chosen the language that they have chosen. And the president has spoken directly saying, we don't think this is, we think it's in Russia, but it's not state sponsored. You could say state enabled. Yeah. I think that's a, an accurate and fair way to, to look at this. I do think that this is a major component of what Biden might try to get done here to stabilize this. Um, and I, I do think it revolves around sort of what the U.S. could do in response. But what you don't clearly don't want, and the Russians know this, that you don't want an escalation of this because it hits everything from major pipelines, infrastructure, hospitals, and, you know, how the U.S. responds to that. Some people call it an act of war. Mm -hmm. I don't know how he will, you know, how they're going to be teeing this up. But I do think this is one of the key issues that will be on the table because I know Biden values greatly what's happening here domestically and the ability to get the U.S. economy and the U.S. Uh, sort of outward face working. And I, I think we already know what they can do in terms of meddling in elections. Mm -hmm. And we already know what they're capable of infrastructure, cyber infrastructure. 
and it borders on the on the point of really a real threat to the United States. So I know it's not probably it dominating the headlines, but I actually think this is the issue that, to me, in my mind, ends up being one of the key issues that the administration will try to seek some stability on. If not, they will have to think about how they are going to respond mm-hmm. in kind. And I, I don't think we want to go down that road because I think, you know, a world where this is a tit for tat and doing these things is not the answer to this issue. But there has to be some pain felt by Putin personally on this mm-hmm. um, and those around him to realize that this is serious. I mean, the historical metaphor I always think about in the, in terms of this new era of, of coverage of cyber conflict is the early nuclear age when suddenly there was this new, incredibly destructive weapon on the table, and there weren't really rules of the road about it. And I think we have to go back to the early nuclear age and look at how those rules of the road were established, because I agree with you, Jonathan. There's one deliverable I would like to see come out of this is at least some kind of agreement on what you can and cannot do with cyber and what are the consequences for violating those rules. I mean, you could have a kind of a mutually assured destruction situation as you did with, with nuclear weapons because you could you could do a lot of damage with a cyber attack on critical infrastructure. But the other part of it that worries me though is that unlike in the nuclear era, there were no kind of like nuclear criminals that were able to launch nuclear attacks without a state yeah. in, in the early nuclear period. And so I, I don't know how you get around this because, you know, is Putin going to go after these cyber criminals? I don't think so. They're adjuncts of the state in a lot of ways. I mean, the organized crime writ large is largely an adjunct of the state. My, my good friend and former podcast host, Mark Galliotti, likes to put it, Russia's not a mafia state. It's a state with a nationalized mafia, yeah. um, which I think is a very accurate way to put it. Yeah. And I consider the cyber portion of that in that conceptualization. So I, I agree that this would be a key deliverable that, to get out of this. But I don't know how you get there. But you know, because of your last statement, there is the ability. If Putin wants to shut this down, he can shut it down. He can. Yes. He can. And so I am sure that this is, you know, hey, look, you know, we could have come out and gone after you guys directly in in this period between now and the summit, but we're asking you, and we'll be saying, you know, shut it down. I don't think it's the same thing as verification of of weapons, but think of it like that too. Yeah. Like you guys have to to do this. My bigger concern with these uh, cyber or internet crackdowns is the inability for Russians internally, you know, once you start to close off the types of engagement, and I'm talking about engaging with Russians, because we're seeing this, this curtain come down over Russian public, no independent, weakened independent media, the attacks on RFERL, which are ridiculous and, and truly troublesome. And of course, it looks like it's moving in a direction where RFERL can't operate. But it's not just obviously that, it's independent media and the ability of Russians to communicate externally. And so I just think we have to be careful about promising from the US side or from allied side that that the international community won't engage with those that Putin views as opponents. Mm-hmm. And it's I think it's a very delicate issue, but and it also is something that I really hope we will talk about some of the democracy-related issues that are components of this engagement. Because the president has said, I'm going to highlight human rights. I'm going to, you know, and he was very clear, you know, in recent speeches that he's not backing down on these issues. I, for one, am very happy to hear that. I think what's happening internally in Russia is a tragedy and one that doesn't get enough attention. And, And if the president of the United States can do more to rally particularly our European partners, to think about how to engage Russians 
in a moment where the walls are closing in, that's important. Thinking about tools, assistance, sanctions. And so I think that's a big component of this engagement. It doesn't always get as much attention as it needs to be, but mm-hmm. I'm glad that he has raised this and will raise it directly with Putin. I mean, one of one of the ways I have thought that we could address not just the cyber issue, but this whole dilemma in general of fighting was effectively what I call a postmodern Cold War. Right? It's a Cold War in which you don't have two hermetically sealed systems. You have a globalized, integrated world where we're both you know, into each other's space. They're more in our space than we are in theirs in this moment. But in, like on the cyber piece, if we did snap cyber exercises where we just kind of made a demonstrate without actually doing it, making it clear what we could do if we so choose to do in terms of creating a deterrent. I think a similar thing could be done with snap financial exercises, or these are the assets we were we would seize, and these are the bank accounts we would freeze in the event of any kind of aggression, and to create at least a deterrent effect, because right now there's no or else, right? And that's yeah. the problem. There's no or else at all, and that, that allows both the state-sponsored and the state-enabled cyber attacks and all the other uh, malign influence actions that Russia's taken to go more or less unpunished. I uh, 100% guarantee that at that NATO summit, this is going to be a topic. I um, hope so. It's a focus area for you know for the Secretary General Stoltenberg for, for leaders there, uh, the U.S.-EU summit as well. And when you look at the president's recent rollout executive order on corruption, I think you can see where he thinks and where the administration thinks you can uh, confront some of these challenges. And you're absolutely right about the ability to target Russian money, which is parked in, you know, in Miami or New York. I think this is where this administration thinks you can work globally as well to strangle some of these malign actors and activities. And I do think this is a pressure point. Is it going to alter some behavior? Maybe. Um, if, if, as you said, tomorrow you wake up and those that are around Putin don't have the resources that they had previously. Yeah, absolutely. And also isolating Russia from financial markets externally is a big deal. Mm-hmm. It's a really big deal. Uh, but it only works if you have, you know, Germany, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you start to look at companies in Europe and the, and, and the U.S. is not immune from this too that do business directly with Mr. Putin, you know, openly, and a lot of previous leaders like Gerhard Schroeder and others that are enablers of these types of activities. I think closing down the space for corruption, as I think the Biden administration is trying to start at home with these executive orders, move it to the international space, Mm -hmm. to to Europe, uh, where a lot of money is parked, and then also preventing these people from traveling, you know, simply, you know, closing off the space for the bad actors, but opening the space for Russians. Right. And I think this is very hard to, you know, sometimes to calibrate. It's more difficult when you have, you know, somebody like Putin, a mafia state that doesn't really care. It doesn't care about his own citizens. Uh, so I think that, you know, we should care. We need to find more ways to engage, to communicate, to open the door as best as we can, but also to shut down the avenues of corruption that seem so open in places where you wouldn't think uh, but it's it's something that we have to uh, to think hard about, you know, closing off those lines of money that fuel Putin and uh, and right. his activities. I mean, the way I think of this is, again, and I do love to kind of go back to these Cold War metaphors and then kind of update them for the 21st century. But we have to figure out how to devise a containment policy 
that works in an integrated globalized world in which like you're at like I said your adversary is is deep in your space where you're financially integrated your information spaces yeah. are integrated and so on but how do you do containment in that type of an environment how do you kind of protect yourself from this malign influence in a world that's not hermetically sealed right mm -hmm. how do you do it in the kinetic and the non-kinetic space right and i i mean uh, yeah. the buzz phrase i use for this is hybrid containment because i think we have to come up with this kind of new containment policy that is truly a hybrid policy that will involve law enforcement and regulatory agencies and finance ministries but then you got to get all and this is something i want to dive into deeper in the yeah. second half but you got to get all the allies on board and there are vastly differing threat perceptions within the alliance regarding yeah. Russia and China. You have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the, the latter point you made about sort of bringing in allies, I think is exactly why the administration is, I know it seems almost overbearing how much time and effort they're right. spending to bend over backwards to try to bring partners to the table, including even Germany, but a lot of damage has been done. You know, like to think that, again, I always use, I talk about how difficult it is to, to maintain support, uh, work with allies, keep coalitions together. And then when you have a leader that's in place that can tear the support so easily, it takes a lot of time and effort to build it up. And I know it doesn't meet or satisfy the emotional, uh, how we feel about the activities taking place by, by Putin um, that we want this administration to respond to. But I really think that they look at this situation and say, oh my gosh, we came in with a mess economically with COVID and with our allies, and we've got to pull it together. So part of it, to me, Biden is really a domestic president who has to get the U.S. back in order. And I think this conversation is about the U.S., but even the U.S. democracy, even over the last several months in the time that Biden's been, it's still what I think they perceive as being in danger from yes. this administration. Laws in different states on restriction of voting. And so they, they have got to deal with these issues as well, because forget about allies. If we have certain states that are willing to conduct elections in, in non-free, fair, transparent right. ma manners, how the hell are you gonna get yeah. your European allies who just saw four years of Trump who are really concerned and looking ahead two years, four years and saying, we don't know what it's gonna look like. So yeah. we have to deal with Putin, we're gonna have to deal with China. And this has been the hardest part, I yeah. think, the allies are buying into it. I think you're going to see statements at G7, NATO, mm -hmm. and the US-EU summit that are going to take on board what Biden is pushing. And these are all interconnected to what you said, with sort of this hybrid response to mm -hmm. an understanding, both doing it domestically and then doing it on the international scale. And I've had a lot of conversations in the lead up to this democracy summit about these components, the domestic and the international, yeah. the external and internal. The hybrid containment begins at home in a lot of ways. If we don't prove that American democracy is resilient and viable, then everything else is moot, actually, when I think about it. And this actually is a good segue into what I call Putin's whataboutism games, where there's been a couple of statements coming out of the Kremlin where Putin, A, claimed he can't say for sure that Biden's the legitimately elected president of the United States. He said that last week. He said he can't be, I can't really be sure. You know, I'm happy to deal with Biden or Trump. Putin said that. And then he also said... The Capitol rioters that were arrested were effectively political prisoners. So he's trolling us, clearly. Yeah. Um, but he's also kind of setting up a whataboutism. When Biden raises the issue of human rights in Russia, Putin is sure as hell going to bring up the issue of the Capitol insurrectionists. When Biden brings up the issue of not free and fair elections in Russia, well, 
Putin's going to say, well, I'm not even sure you're the, you're the democratically elected. I mean, he's already said these things publicly. Is this just trolling that we can ignore or is this truly a problem? You know, I'm less concerned about Putin and then how our European allies and partners view mm-hmm. American democracy and stability. Their statements of our partners post January 6th were very much about upholding democracy, human rights, and sort of support for the outcome of the election or recognizing it. You know, Putin needs to do this. And I'm not sure who the, you know, I guess maybe he thinks it's good for his domestic audience, but I think it has little impact. And I think Biden wants to have these conversations because it's okay for in the United States to have these conversations. Mm. Um, and I, I think he's, I think Biden is less worried about that issue than, you know, backing it up by supporting the things that he's supporting internally in the United States to strengthen democracy. It'd be nice to see HR1, uh, frankly, from my perspective, passed. Uh, maybe Joe Manchin and Senator Manchin and others will decide to move on that as a sign of the US domestic commitment to moving forward to strengthen democracy. Uh, but one thing I do think about post January 6th is that the US, US democracy, it's been hit, but it's resilient in mm-hmm. many ways and that we need to keep working on it. And I think Biden would be the first one to say that democracy is like, you know, grass growing and, you know, you kind of mow it, <laughs> comes back up, you know, but you got to tend to it. And I think this will be, I think that's fine for him. I, I, in fact, I think Putin stepping right into that conversation, you know, doesn't end well for Putin. Yeah. But I do think on the flip side, when you look at that September Duma election and, you know, uh, poisoning of Navalny, locking him up, going after political opposition, civil society, independent media, going after others, you know, in this process. I mean, I, I think it says a lot more about Putin's own fears internally, mm-hmm. from, from my perspective. When you look at polling numbers, look at next generation, yeah. I'm not saying that this is wholesale or that there's changes that are coming. But for somebody who, you know, who's talking about this, he's got to be looking. I know he's obsessed with numbers and sort of uh, making certain that there's no political opposition. He's done it. But you can imagine in September, if I'm the U.S. and I look at that, if that if the election happens in uh, mm. the human election happens, some ifs, how is the United States and European partners going to respond? And I think my hope is that it's the same type of response that we saw with Lukashenko in terms of saying, you know, this is not a legitimate election. Uh, And so I I actually think, you know, there'll have to be some decisions made in the U.S. And I I hope that nothing in the current conversation with Putin next week precludes the U.S. They're strongly coming out and condemning what's not a free, fair election, urging the release of political prisoners and doing what we can do to engage Russians who want to have uh, a political system uh, that is open, free, and fair. And we know that if there were that that open and free system, you would see some interesting outcomes. Yes, you would. You know, it, you know and I'm not saying that that wholesale changes, but but it's pretty clear even from polling, whether you believe the polling or not, there's a lot of unhappiness internally. So uh, I, I didn't mean to get off track, but I do think that the No, that's fine. The, um, I think that the that that I'm I'm less concerned about Putin weighing in because you know as a guy who who seeks to murder his own political opposition, you have very little credibility internationally. The only people that might seize on it are you know people who are like minded like Lukashenko, you know who, who who likes to pull on this, but but they've already proven to be what they are. So uh, not a lot of credibility. 
And I only think, frankly, from my perspective, it just highlights the challenges and the threats and and the unfortunate situation facing Russians. And I think Biden will be able to turn that directly back on him again and maybe also be able to provide a message to send it to the Russian people that, you know, whether they are aware or not, the U.S. uh, and others want to support them. Uh, And this is not about uh, the actions taken are not about them, but about uh, the actions taken by the same person who's persecuting and oppressing them. Right. No, I think you're right about that. But I also think what Putin was trying to do here was to kind of increase polarization in the United States with these remarks. Um, I think and it it didn't get a lot of traction here. I didn't see it get a lot of play here. So I guess maybe he missed missed the mark here. Before we move into the next section to talk more deeply about the allies, you mentioned Belarus. Earlier you mentioned Ukraine. And there is something I did want to talk about because this is the space that Putin really cares about, this contested space of, of Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova, and to a less contested degree, Belarus. This is where Putin wants a grand bargain. This is where he wants a free hand. This is where he's never going to get a grand bargain and never going to get a free hand because the sovereignty of these countries is not ours to bargain with. It belongs to them. But this is sure to come up. Belarus, we could separate out. And I've been I've been writing about this regularly in my column for the Atlantic Council. Um, I mean, the soft annexation of Belarus is pretty much underway right now. It's pretty much underway. And the greater extent that Lukashenko becomes a pariah, actually, this serves Putin's purposes in a lot of ways. I have information that was actually Russian intelligence that gave Lukashenko the information that Protasevich was on that flight from Athens to Vilnius. And it looked like a classic uh, reflexive control operation where they just let the let the chips fall because turning Lukashenko into pariah actually helps Russia's interests in Belarus because Russia wants to move beyond Lukashenko. They're already putting the pieces in place to control a post-Lukashenko Belarus. So that's that's one piece that we have to deal with. And I don't have any easy answers in terms of how U.S. policy can address that. It's tricky. The other piece are the three countries that are in fits and starts, um, one step forward, two steps back, moving toward democracy and toward the West. That, of course, is Ukraine Georgia and, and Moldova, which were during the last administration neglected at best by the administration. <laughs> how do we, how, how, and these are three countries that truly, Ukraine and Georgia certainly, Moldova is more of a divided society, truly look to the US for protection and inspiration. What can, what can we do there in, yeah. in, to, to revive our, our, our policies there? Because we're, it's slipping in Georgia, Ukraine's you know, in a state of war, Moldova's a you know, divided country that has elections coming up. How do you see all of these, this contested area? Yeah, well, well one, I've been, I've, been, I've been reading what you've been writing about Russia, Belarus, and I, I, I can't disagree uh, with you. And, I, and, and this is something that, you know, I think partially because, and I, I, was, I was asked about U.S.-Belarus relations, mm-hmm. And you know, it was interesting that Pompeo, Secretary of State Pompeo in the previous administration was in Belarus yep. in February of 2020. There had been baby steps for years of uh, sort of relaxation of sanctions. And you know, one thing that that really, I think, drove part of the thinking in, in the previous administration was this concern about Russia and Belarus mm-hmm. uh, and about this creep. I think you you have to go back and take a look at the language. And this was even in, uh, you know, really 2017, uh, 2018, where you started to uh, see people really starting to pay a little bit more attention, because I think the perspective for many who are not familiar with Belarus was that, you know, for some people, they thought this was already the case. Right. These countries were so close. Where it it wasn't. It wasn't before. Yeah. And so I think some very good research was done. 
uh, by groups including ISANS, which is you know somebody that we've hosted previously, talking about laying out you know the same people that were involved in activities in in Ukraine and in the Donbas um, were also some of the same people carrying out similar activities yeah. in Belarus. And yeah. what the hell, you know? I thought these guys were besties, but the, but the truth is, when you started to look at at polling numbers in Belarus. You know, Belarusians, you know, look at themselves as independent, not that they have bad relations or think badly of Russia, but an independent state. Um, and then you fast forward, you know, obviously to these elections and what you've been writing out, too. So I think there's absolute concern. It was good to see Ambassador Julie Fisher and uh, and others appear before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in the U.S. is clearly thinking through the strategy of engagement. But it is a very difficult situation one, to respond, obviously, with sanctions, not only related to what took place with the, the airline takedown, but also in terms of how best to support Belarusian opposition, not op- not opposition, but civil society and others that are trying to engage, to seek peaceful political transition. And also, I think, being very clear that this is not about sort of East versus West, U.S. versus Russia, but really about ensuring and allowing Belarusians to have a free and fair election, a real political transition. Like you say, I mean, it's unlikely Putin will ever allow that. Yep. Um, and in fact, I think, you know, what we saw with that that takedown of the plane and, and sort of that arrest human rights violation, which I call it a human rights violation to do that, was, you know, clearly some Moscow support. I think immediately everybody looked at it and, and it reminded them of um, some other activities that have taken place. I thought of MH17, I think, but also a MiG-29 going up uh, six months from the border of Lithuania to me with a plane full of, of European EU citizens and others, to me, isn't something that Lukashenko does without knowledge. Yes. Of, and that's disturbing. So on that issue, I think the U.S. is trying to do what it can do. It needs to have both a short-term perspective and longer term because this is clearly not playing out immediately. And uh, Biden has said that he will raise, that this issue will come up. But I think that Russia holds more of the cards in this, clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, and But it's just another example of support for somebody who is uh, repressive, has sort of arrested tens of thousands, has significant number of political prisoners. Uh, so it's the same thing. Now, flipping to Georgia, Ukraine, and Moldova, you're right. All the, They're all in different states of progress, and they have been. The NATO summit is quite important. I'm not expecting that NATO would is going to move forward on map uh, for Georgia or Ukraine, which I think is unfortunate. Yes. Uh, not to move this process forward or to give both of them uh, more significant face time um, at, at the NATO conference. Um, I, I think that's problematic. Uh, but what I do think is that this administration, which just had Assistant Secretary of State Phil Reeker, was just out in Georgia over the last couple of days. Um, the U.S. also played a significant role in helping to resolve a political crisis in Georgia. And of course, in Ukraine, I, I think the U.S. has been as engaged as possible. The biggest challenge that I see is not U.S. support for Ukrainians, because I think that's there. It's there. And I, I see, I can see the budget numbers for this fiscal year. The administration has put in over $250 million in support for Ukraine a significant amount for military assistance as well. These are all positive signs. There's been many conversations. The Blinken visit, the one area where I think there's a challenge is that I, I don't think that the Biden administration looks at 
Zelensky on reforms. And I think this is really important for Biden. Um, as somebody who was working on Ukraine 2014 to 2017 in the previous administration, Biden was so centrally engaged in reforms and countering corruption and sort of democratic progress, uh, rule of law, judicial reform. Mm -hmm. He knows this yes. so well, in fact, it's too well for a president. And when he looks at the lack of action and he sends the secretary of state out and Ukrainian, you know, Ukraine or the government, Zelensky does something prior to Blinken being in Kiev that moves the, the needle in the wrong direction. He can't help but look out and say, I've seen this before. And my hope is that before Zelensky comes to Washington, uh, I hope the president and his team and, and secretary of state lay out exactly what the U.S. wants Ukraine to do, their leadership, to not only pass laws, but begin to implement them. This is a critical component of the relationship. It is also one of the key areas where Europeans look at Ukraine and say there's no progress. And, you know, it's important for Ukraine internally to do this. It's not the sexy it's not pipeline issues. It's not, you know, it's not, you know, it's not the, you know, the 100,000 troop buildup. It's about the direction of Ukraine. Specifically. Yeah. And, and I think that if there is progress, I think it makes it very difficult if there's real progress to deny that Euro-Atlantic integration of Ukraine. And then on Moldova, um, look, I think Maya Sandu is probably in that region is on the issue of democracy credentials is probably the strongest out of yeah. anybody. Yeah. Um, and I think really a remarkable story for a country that um, has had extraordinary amounts of corruption, money stolen, oligarchs, right. you know, Dodon and Putin, you know, it's got, it just, it has all this and remarkable for her in the middle of COVID in a <laughs> electoral system, so it's not pretty fair to win. I think kudos to her, and I think she's actually in a pretty good, has a pretty good chance in her party to lead the next government. Yeah, and yeah. our part here that's important is, are the United States, is the EU, and is you know are others in the international financial institutions that can be supportive, ready to help? Because she is really a strong example, and I have I only praise for the courage yeah. in the middle of a system for her to do what she has done. I know it's that Moldova doesn't normally get a significant attention, but it's really an extraordinary story of courage and ability to persevere in a system that couldn't be any more weighted against right. this type of progress. But it also tells you too, that, that even in the midst of democratic backsliding, authoritarian creep, massive efforts by the Kremlin to influence the situation there, the Moldovan people, want yeah. something different. Decisively. I think it's something to watch and I hope supported uh, to the fullest by the US uh, and the EU and other partners. If that election, if they're, you know, if Sandu and, and their team is ready to move forward on combating corruption and doing the right thing and, and seeking integration, we should seize on that quickly. And I think there are some signs that you can see from the administration and talking to people, they recognize this is happening in the din of, of our bigger issue, we're talking about Putin, Ukraine, China, uh, Moldova sometimes uh, doesn't get the attention it deserves. 
Yeah, no, I would agree. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big admirer of Maya Sandu. Um, and on that note, it's actually a good time to shift gears into our second half. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and broaden the aperture to look at the U.S.-Russia summit as well as the G7 and NATO summits in the context of what the U.S. president calls an existential collision between democracies and autocracies. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And also joining me from our nation's capital is Jonathan Katz, a senior fellow and director of democracy initiatives at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Before joining GMF, Jonathan served as deputy assistant administrator in the Europe and Eurasia Bureau in the U.S. Agency for International Development. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. So as we know, before President Biden meets Putin in Geneva, he, at the moment of this recording, he is attending the G7 summit in London, and he will go on to the NATO summit in Brussels and and a U.S.-EU summit in Brussels as well. Part of all this is an effort to repair relations with the allies. Part of it is an effort to shore up Western democracies, many of which are in crisis on both sides of the Atlantic and in the struggle against authoritarian regimes like Russia and China. Jonathan, I see three pieces to the current challenges. First, as we discussed earlier, confronting authoritarian adversaries, primarily Russia and China. The second involves domestic reforms on both sides of the Atlantic, where democracies have been buffeted by rising populism, polarization, and dysfunction. And the third involves bringing the allies and the Western democracies back together again. Those divisions, as you know, were were recently illustrated over the controversy over the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and the the sanctions and sanctions waivers. Um, We had a very, very lively discussion on this podcast a couple of weeks back with your colleague Josh Rudolph at the GMF and with Paul Massaro from the Helsinki Commission. I'm sure we're going to talk about that in the context of this. But how do you see all of this? What do you expect from the first part of Biden's trip, which means focusing on the allies before he meets with Putin? You know, I think you sort of laid out the three goals quite well, you know, and I think it's sort of written, even written by the administration, too, about what they want to do. And I think they're taking steps. The president, even sort of early on in his trip, has I think, interestingly enough, I spent a little bit of time trying to to bolster um, Boris Johnson yeah. in the UK and that transatlantic relations and all of what's happened over the last you know couple of years, uh, both both uh, Trump, the relationship with Russia, the rise of autocracies, and sort of the the challenges domestically in the US, the UK is one where we, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to highlight that because I think, Ensuring that the UK is is firmly engaged, entrenched, successful from the perspective of the US, both in terms of its connection to to Europe, even as it moves away from the EU, is really is, is paramount. And I'm happy to see that. And I think um, you know, Boris Johnson, for whatever you think of him, can be an ally. And I think he's 
he has enough maneuverability and flexibility in how he approaches politics to recognize this moment. And I think for the UK, when the US economy does well, uh, when the US is looking good, it's good for him. So step one was to deal with some of those issues too with the UK. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy the, that the president did that and reaffirmed that close relationship. And of course, you know, onto the G7. Now that's not just the United States. It's not just European allies. We also have connections to, to Asia as well. And I think it's important too, just as you said, that these challenges, autocracies and China, which is a, extraordinarily complicated, particularly for a country like Japan, mm-hmm. it needs to have allies, not only in the Atlantic, but the Pacific. And and so when I look at this week, I, I, I don't only think that the administration is focused on sort of transatlantic issues. They've spent a tremendous amount of time with whether it's the Quad, engaging directly, having the South Koreans, the Japanese. Right. Um, and so I don't think that the, you know, from Obama to Biden, that the mentality on it's I wouldn't call it any type of a pivot because I think we're way past mm. you know that ship has sailed with the Trans-Pacific Partnership and uh, and some of those agreements. But the administration very much wants to have the ability to be able to how do you deal one with Russia um, and how do you in order to be able to also to address what I think that they view as the more significant long term challenge. Others would disagree with that. Others don't like to classify. I've heard people say people want to park Russia, deal with China, you know, sort of classified in, mm. in different ways. We can't slogan this. I do think that they do want the involvement. And it's pretty clear that, it, and it may not be, they want a strong NATO. Uh, there's a big contrast between the U.S. and transatlantic allies, G7, uh, obviously, and and China, and what China looks to when they look to allies and partners. And I think this is a very important uh, as is the engagement with Asia-Pacific powers like Australia, uh, Japan, South Korea, and then looking to India. So I think that's very much a part of this. But I think the strengthening of the um, of the transatlantic unity um, is something that they're looking for Europe to always, I think, step up and strengthen its role in addressing, I think, Russia. And I think this is a weakness. I, yeah. I, I, I thought back in the Obama administration that U.S., European cooperation. I, let's let's take NATO aside. Forget about the military buildup and the Balts and and mm-hmm. you know I'm happy to see the administration put additional 500 troops into Germany. That's really important. But the strategic, the strategy on how to engage Russia to me always seemed a weak link. Mm-hmm. And and seeing it from the inside as well that that there wasn't this cooperation or vision, and that's partially because there were different visions of what the relationship with Russia looks right. like, whether you're talking to you're in NATO or you're talking to the EU. But I, I do think this is a, a strategy for the administration to work on. And I hope they don't forget their allies in Eastern Europe and yeah. partners as well, because I think that you can't have a strategy that doesn't include those frontline countries that have a great deal of fear about even on Belarus, you and I did not talk about the military impact yeah, no, of this union of a union state and what it means for those countries that may fear a greater uh, Russian military presence or more threatening military presence. And so I do think I agree with you. Um, I think that what you laid out in terms of autocracies, 
you know, and I think part of this too is dealing with some of the internal democracy and external democracy challenges. And I think you're going to see that play out through all of these. And I think I said earlier, you know, each one of these, you know, summits, so I, I don't know if it will be Putin, Biden, but at least if they'll have a statement, we'll see, you know, there are rumors of they're working on a statement and, you know, uh, we'll see if they can come to an agreement on on something that probably says uh, little next to nothing. Right, right. What can they agree on? But I expect that G7 statement, the, the NATO summit statement, and then also the US-EU statement, summit statement, to include a lot of the things that you have just laid out uh, right. and, and sort of a, a course correction. I think this will be, a Biden administration may not get credit for this, but if they successfully pull this off, they will set the base for what comes next multilaterally, but also right. with key partners. So I think this is really important. Now, I, on, the, on the Belarus piece, Jonathan, too, I mean, you don't need a union state to have a Russian permanent military presence there. There are a lot of people keeping a close eye on this that say that Russia has already established a de facto permanent military presence there through continuous rotations and almost never-ending exercises. You effectively already have. Yeah. The Poles and the Lithuanians have certainly noticed that. There's plans to build a base in western Belarus near the Polish border. This has already happened, and Russia is going to get that air base that long wanted in, 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 in eastern Belarus. And this points to something also you raised, and I think it's probably at the heart of the matter and one of the difficult, most difficult needles to thread right now. And that is the differing threat perceptions across the alliance with regard to Russia and, by the way, China. But the farther east you go, you have higher threat perceptions of Russia. The, the Poles, the Balts, the Romanians have a very high threat perception. As you move west, the Germans are willing to, you know, to do business with the Russians. The French are also willing to do business with the Russians. How do you bridge this gap? As somebody that's been on the inside in some of these discussions, how do you bridge this gap on the threat perceptions? I don't think we're ever going to get to a place where we're on the same page, but can we kind of reach a common denominator on this? Yeah. I mean, I, this has been a challenge for not only in this issue, but you know, for Europe, EU foreign policy. And we, we started off talking about, the, you know, just a few minutes ago about the UK UK not being in the EU also has changed the, mm. the equation. And when you look at polling numbers at how, you know, who, who do Europeans view as the most significant European power, typically they point to Germany. And so Germany is, you know, and, and previously the UK played a, a more outsized role. So I think for the US, it's making certain that, you know, I know the president uh, spoke to the Bucharest Nine Maybe that wasn't as substantive as it could be, but it's a good start to make certain that when we think about Europe and the EU, that we do our diplomatic spade work to try to get to mm -hmm. these capitals, to bring them in, because I can almost see Eastern European, Central European eyes roll over when you know when we have these conversations about Germany and NS2. By the way, it's not just Ukraine that is impacted. Right. By this, you know, if you remove the pipeline or the incentive to for Russia to play nice while this pipeline still exists and is meaningful, if you're the Poles, you're concerned about this. You're yes. concerned about energy security. And so, you know, while this may not be at the top of the agenda of Macron in Paris, who's getting an election, is worried probably about Russian disinformation again mm -hmm. or fund direct funding of Le Pen. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, so I, I think. Um, there is cause for concern. There are differences. I think one good thing about Biden is that he's committed to bringing partners together. And I think this week was set up, and I, I know having conversations with some NATO Central European partners, 
that you know they're worried but i said you know these are conversations you guys are sitting at the table at nato you're sitting at the table at the us eu summit there are opportunities to have these conversations i think it would have been good perhaps to tack on you know another leg of this trip mm-hmm. um i would say that i think when you look at central europe there's some difficulties yeah. um one you look at viktor orban and there isn't eye to eye on issues of democracy, even in Warsaw. I think it's awkward. The decision by the Polish government to embrace Trump in the way that they did puts them in an awkward dance with this administration that wants to have strong Polish allies, right. but it's looking at the backsliding of democracy and rule of law internally in Central Europe or Hungary's open and willingness to engage and you know, cooperate with the Chinese who are setting up a university or Russia, you know, that's able to set up this, you know, quasi, you know, sort of spy bank, right. you know, within its territories. And you've got to wonder about what role they're playing. So when you look at Hungary, Bulgaria, um, when you look at Warsaw, or even in the Czech Republic with uh, the Czech president, sometimes it's not as easy because there is absolutely still. Um, significant presence in, of Russian engagement in yeah. some of these capitals, not Warsaw, but Warsaw, it's more about the, the democracy issue. Yeah. And, and that engagement's important. But I, I think finding a way to, to do that, to highlight that engagement with them, to reassure partners in the Balts, and, you know, in Central Europe, that three C's group is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there's two differing levels of being problematic on the democracy issue, which Hungary and Poland kind of illustrate. And that's something that needs to be addressed. I think a lot of that may be addressable by a more robust American presence there. We were kind of absent for four years to a large degree. And I think when, you know, when, when the cat's away, the mice will play sort of. And I'm, I'm hoping re-engagement will begin to address that. The other piece that's difficult, though, is what Nord Stream 2 showed how thorny this issue of differing threat perceptions is, because in that sense, we were stuck in a position where either we have to sanction our allies, which you don't want to do, or you're going to let this this pipeline go ahead, which is a security threat to us and our allies. So that's the more difficult needle of the two to thread. Would you agree? Yeah. This issue of German business and industry in relationship with Russia, um, obviously, there are some very deep relations um, but you see this in the Czech Republic as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, you, you see it uh, in Hungary, you see it in France, you know, and it's a question of how we want businesses, including American businesses, which, by the way, when they're if American businesses are in Hungary, they're going to toe the line of Viktor Orban. You know, so how do we address economic engagement with a country like Russia and underlying some corruption? that is connected to this. And so I don't think the the NS2 uh, issue is done. I mean, Mm -hmm. I heard Secretary Blinken say at Senate Foreign Relations Committee that, you know, know, pipelines also have to be turned on. They need permitting, they need insurance. And, you know, it signals to me that I think they're looking for a diplomatic solution that they feel that maybe they can come to some sort of an agreement that addresses some of these challenges. I'm not holding my breath that that's so easy, maybe waiting until after the German elections that's the case to see yeah. who, you know, sort of what comes out of that. But I do take very seriously, I heard from a number of people, that the relationship with Germany is critical. And mm-hmm. so how they approach it and what they think is important and signals to send. And I think people have every right. And I see from Congress the criticism 
you know, of of what exactly what you talked about in terms of sanctions. But it's a challenging issue for the administration. And it's not only in their watch that that this thing was built out or 90 percent. We can sort of go through the percentages of this. I, I don't think this issue is done, nor is the ability to potentially turn it off or seek alternative you know, actions to be taken both by Germany and the United States and others to potentially address some of the challenges related to this. I mean, it's complicated, but but I, I don't think it's dead. No, I, I would agree with you there. I'm certainly hopeful that we can resolve this, but it is a thorny issue. It's a thorny, it's a, it's a difficult needle to thread, as it were. Well, I'm getting the messages from the podcast gods that it's time to wrap it up because we're running out of time. That's all we have time for today, unfortunately. I would like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me also from our nation's capital has been Jonathan Katz, senior fellow and director of democracy initiatives at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Before joining GMF, Jonathan served as deputy assistant administrator in the Europe and Eurasia Bureau of the U.S. Agency for International Development. Jonathan, thank you for an enlightening and lively discussion. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much and uh, looking forward to the next opportunity. No, we'll do. We'll, we'll certainly do it again. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad handles our all-important post-production duties, making us all sound a whole lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org and you can follow us on the twitter at power vertical join us again next week and until then i leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.